Hello friends, welcome back to the podcast. As I'm sure you've noticed from the title of this episode, we are covering egg freezing once again. Last episode with Dr. Polyakov from Melbourne IVF, we focused, I guess, a bit more on the medical side of things. Who should consider egg freezing? What's the best age? What the procedure is like? All that kind of stuff. Today on the show, I'm really stoked to be joined by Molly Johnston, who is a PhD candidate who does heaps of research in this area down in Melbourne at Monash University. So she's going to, I guess, cover a bit more of the social side of things, as well as what the trends are in Australia with uptake and what the kind of limitations and stuff around egg freezing are. So it's a really great episode to round out, I guess, just your information or knowledge around egg freezing. And I hope you enjoy it. Can I ask if you do enjoy the podcast or even just this episode, if you could jump on the podcast app and give us a five-star review and maybe even write some kind words if you have a spare three minutes. We do really appreciate it and it helps other people find us. So thanks and enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast today. Um, If you've been listening along, you might have heard the episode we've already done on elective egg freezing with Dr. Polyakov a couple of weeks ago. But today I'm really excited to be joined by Molly Johnston, who's a PhD candidate at Monash University, um, to take a bit of a deep dive, I guess, into elective egg freezing and look more at the social and ethical issues surrounding it. Because um, I guess I received so many questions about this topic and it's certainly not something I'm an expert in. So I'm really happy to have an expert on. So welcome to the show, Molly. Thanks for your time. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to have you on. Um, can you just, I guess, start by telling us a bit about yourself and what your research is all about? Yeah, sure. So I am a fourth year PhD candidate. Um, I'm about two months away from submitting my thesis. So I'm always at the end. Um, And my research is concerned with looking at the policies and laws that govern access to and funding for egg freezing. Very exciting. Exciting that you're almost done too. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm just so excited to kind of get to, the light is definitely at the end of my tunnel now. Yeah, (laughs) long process for you. And how did you kind of get interested in research in this area? So I guess um, it kind of started in my undergraduate degree. So I knew that I wanted to do something in regards to healthcare and science. Um, And I just remember seeing one lecture about um, our developmental origins. So essentially how you go from one cell to a human being. And it just blew my mind. So I pursued postgraduate studies in reproduction. And I did a graduate diploma in reproductive science at Monash. And my intention with doing this degree was that I wanted to go on and do my master's in clinical embryology, um, which is essentially the course that trains um, embryologists, so the scientists who work in IVF um, clinics. But I got, you know, I got about halfway through my graduate diploma and I had one lecture and it just radically changed my thinking. Um, I just, you know, I didn't really think much about the ethics associated with IVF um, or anything about how our policies are structured and it just really changed everything for me. And essentially from that day onwards, I was just like, I don't think I can do embryology. I think I'm much more interested in looking at, you know, policies and um, legislation. So that's kind of, so then I kind of just, you know, I finished that course and then I went into research and started my PhD. 
That's really exciting. It's so crazy how like one lecture can just really change your whole oh career trajectory like I that. Know, yeah. I know. I came home and I told my partner and I was like, oh, I don't think I can do this anymore. And he's like, please, no more study. And I was like, oh, just another four years. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, we appreciate your work because it's a very interesting area. Um, and I guess from my point of view, like even as a med student, I feel like it's not something that we really learned much about, but it is getting, mm. it seems to be getting more and more popular. Popular. why do you think that is like why is it more prevalent or talked about now yeah so I think that actually comes down to a couple of things so the first thing is is that we're much better at it you know egg freezing actually has been around for you know quite some time the first live birth from a frozen egg was reported in the 80s um, wow. but at that point you know it was, we weren't very good at it it wasn't a reliable um, procedure you know we not many eggs would survive when they were frozen and then they'll thawed out. Um, so we couldn't really, you know, effectively use it in clinics. Um, so it's only really been over the last, say, 20, 10 to 20 years that we've gotten much better at freezing eggs. Um, you know, we can, you know, we're pretty confident in saying that, you know, majority of the eggs will survive a thaw, will survive thawing. And, you know, there's also been a lot more evidence in regards to, you know, live births from this um, procedure as well. So because of this, we've become better at it. Um, you know, in 2012, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine actually removed the experimental label from egg freezing. So meaning that, you know, they said that there was enough um, evidence um, to support this procedure and they essentially endorsed it. And um, there were some studies done, you know, pretty much straight after this announcement that showed there was a huge spike in the number of people seeking egg freezing. So it was almost like this was a external validation for people to start going and, um, you know, seeking this procedure. But I also think there was one other um, pretty dramatic um, announcement that happened that really, you know, kind of projected egg freezing into mainstream media. And that was in... Um, 2014, um, some big companies out of the US announced that they were going to start um, covering the cost of egg freezing for their employers, employees. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was massive news. It made like worldwide headlines. Um, and, you know, they brought forward a lot of discussions about, you know, fertility preservation and, you know, storing eggs and what this means for women and, you know, whether, you know, we should be outsourcing these costs to, you know, external companies, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's just that we can do it better and, you know, more people know about it now. Absolutely, yeah. And do you think, like, over the course of that time, obviously, I guess anything that's labelled experimental in medicine, people naturally are a bit nervous yes. about or, yes. you know, have an, uh, a healthy amount of caution when they uh, access those types of medical treatments. Um, do you think at the moment in Australia that, elective egg freezing is generally supported or looked on as a good thing? Yeah, so um, we actually did a study on this. So one of my major studies of my PhD um, was looking at public perceptions on who should be accessing egg freezing. Um, so we, you know, the, the, I guess I should probably say before this that, you know, majority of people who sought egg freezing were doing it for medical reasons. So they might be undergoing cancer treatment or they might have a genetic condition such as Turner syndrome or even, you know, endometriosis. Um, so there was a medical indication there. Um, so then this kind of, um, I guess, once we started getting better at egg freezing, it did open up the opportunity for women to seek it in um, without having these, you know, immediate medical threats to fertility and could use it to, you know, respond to, um, you know, the idea of age-related infertility and the onset of menopause. 
So when we asked our participants um, who should be accessing egg freezing and for what reasons, um, you know, unsurprisingly, we found that there was a lot of support for medical egg freezing. Um, we had, you know, 98% of participants support this. And then when we asked them about non-medical egg freezing, we still had a high level of support, but this was slightly, this was less. So we had about 72% of participants say that they um, endorsed um, women accessing egg freezing for these non-medical um, uses. Right. Okay. So, and presumably that's a pretty recent study if it's part of your the work you've done in your PhD. Yeah, yeah. So we published that earlier this year. So the results of that study. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess it kind of makes sense in a way. People are always understanding of medical conditions and, mm-hmm. you know, how that impacts fertility. Um, do you think it's changing how people are looking at social reasons for egg freezing or do you think that's kind of how it's been for a while? Well, I definitely think it is changing. Um, I mean, there's been earlier studies that looked into um, public perceptions on medical and non-medical egg freezing. And, you know, earlier studies were showing there was a lot more, um, I guess, hesitations to um, supporting these non-medical applications. But, you know, our study is, is relatively, is, you know, it's very recent um, and we did see, you know, a high level of support for this. So it does look like this is, you know, there has been a shift in attitudes and, you know, people are thinking about, you know, maybe this is, you know, a another, um, I guess, reproductive technology that, you know, could really have significant use in a um, community. Interestingly, though, when we did look at these perceptions towards, you know, non-medical or elective egg freezing, um, it did seem to be that these attitudes did stem or at least were influenced by the reason that women were seeking non-medical egg freezing. So when we asked the question about who should be accessing this, we gave a few reasons why women might be wanting to seek um, elective egg freezing. So the first reason we gave was because they don't have a partner we also gave the option, the I guess the reason, um, so they could advance their careers or finish education. Um, and the third one was about financial security. So when they, if women didn't feel secure enough to have a child right now, maybe they could freeze their eggs. And what we found was, um, you know, whilst there was higher support, the highest supported indication was for lack of a suitable partner. Um, there was less support for egg fr- elective egg freezing when it was done for reasons of women wanting to further their careers or finish their education. Um, And this was quite a significant difference in support. And what we found was, you know, some of the comments that people made about this um, seemed to stem from the idea that in these these situations, um, you know, egg freezing isn't necessary. Like it's not, you know, it's not like it's a medical indication where this is their only option um, for women who are using egg freezing just to, you know, be able to pursue their careers. Like they could choose to do otherwise and it's not really necessary. So, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of these attitudes seem to stem from, you know, the uses and what people think is an appropriate um, or appropriate reason why they should be seeking elective egg freezing. Very interesting. And did you look at in that study, sorry, we're kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Probably going more into this than you expected we would. But um, did you look at, like, of the respondents, if the women responding to the survey responded differently to the men or anything like that? Like, were women more in support of women furthering their careers? Yeah, so interestingly, um, the study was open up to um, all genders. Um, However, it was, like, majority of our sample was female. So I think we ended up, it was ended up being, like, a a 90 to 10 split between females to um, males. So we did preliminary investigations looking at, you know, um, male perspectives versus female perspectives. And we actually found that, you know, the um, men were very similar in their views. 
Um, if anything, they had less support for medical egg freezing, which was a bit interesting. Oh. <laughs> yeah, which was a bit surprising for us. But in saying that, that level of support was still very, very high. So this study that we ended up writing up, um, we actually only looked at female pers- um, pers- perspectives on it. And, you know, in terms of demographic differences, we found that, you know, women over the age of 40 were less likely to support um, elective egg freezing. And yeah, so we did see a bit of an age discrepancy there. Right. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. I think I saw like the abstract of your article online when I was preparing for these interviews. Yeah, really quite interesting. I might link it in the show notes if anyone is interested to um, do a bit further reading. So in terms of you've mentioned that obviously it's, you know, something people are accessing more now than probably they have in the past. What are the trends in Australia in terms of who is accessing elective egg freezing? Yeah, so I've actually um, just written up a study on this. So it's under review now, so it's not actually available yet. But we essentially looked at data over a five-year period um, to essentially investigate whether the, how these trends have changed and we compared this with data we collected from the US as well. So it was a re- it was quite a big study, um, and we found that you know over time there has been a dramatic increase in the number of women seeking egg freezing. Um, you know, in the US uh, from two thousand and ten two thousand and two two thousand and sixteen, uh, that increase you know was almost nine hundred percent in the number of cycles. Oh, wow. <laughs> and in Australia, it was. Um, yeah, about 330% increase. So it's it's a huge increase. Um, we also saw that the age of the women seeking egg freezing has um, shifted down. So um, a lot of studies that have looked at um, elective egg freezing have found that the women accessing this technology are in their late 30s, um, which has implications on in terms of treatment success. But we saw that over this five-year period that we analysed, um, there has been a shift down. So it's looking more like women in their mid-30s. However, um, an issue that we found with when we were looking at these trends was that clinics, um, when they're reporting their data to these big databases were told all of the IVF data, um, didn't have to indicate whether a cycle was an elective egg freezing cycle or a medical egg freezing cycle. And I think this is because, you know, mm. this dramatic increase in cycle numbers that we've seen um, you know, kind of outpaced the um, update of reporting um, procedures and um, standards. So we actually don't know what the proportion of cycles can be attributed to elective egg freezing and if this has changed over time. And all we can really comment on is um, anecdotal um, reports that we've heard from clinics in Australia that have suggested that, you know, this huge increase um, is due to women seeking elective egg freezing. And, you know, when you think about it, it does make sense because, you know, you'd assume that the number of women seeking medical egg freezing would be relatively stable. Um, So, yeah, we don't really have the numbers yet. Um, I do know that both the American database and the Australian database are now starting to collect data on um, whether a cycle is medical or or elective. Um, So, you know, in a few years' time, we will probably have a better understanding of what the actual ratio breakdown is of these cycles. Yeah, okay. So watch this space exactly down the track. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so my impression with again, this is not based on research, I don't do research in this area, but my impression is that elective egg freezing is generally accessed by women who don't have partners. But do you know, is there much uptake amongst women who have partners and are either kind of unsure if they want kids with this partner or 
you know, if they want kids with that partner later down the track? Yeah, so there has been um, a few studies that have looked at the motivations for women who um, seek elective egg freezing. And you are correct, predominantly, um, you know, these women are women who don't have a partner at the time. And, you know, there has been probably in about 5 to 10% of um, the studies or the samples um, included in these studies, um, women have reported that they do have a partner um, and that, you know, they just don't feel like this partner, you know, is the person who they want to have children with or that maybe the partner doesn't want to have children themselves. So it's a very small proportion that can, that are, you know, seeking egg freezing with who with whom they have a partner. Um, but in saying that, you know, as we're seeing this sh- shift in ages, as people are getting younger when they're seeking egg freezing, um, this could be a real um, reason why women might start seeking egg freezing now, um, you know, if even if they are in situations where they do have partners but just don't feel like this person is the one, um, this technology, you know, might become more known to them or they might be more aware and, you know, actually start considering this a bit earlier on. Yeah, and in the other episode we talked about Apparently, if you freeze an embryo rather than an egg, you then need your partner's permission if you want to use it later down the track, whereas I guess you don't have that limitation if you're just freezing your eggs. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so that's another good thing to think about, I guess. So as someone who does lots of research in policy and legislation and that sort of thing, can you explain to us why there's so many limitations in terms of, you know, accessing egg freezing and what they can do with it once they're frozen or, you know, if you decide you don't want to use them? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, um, I guess probably the major limitation with um, accessing egg freezing comes down to, you know, the factors that determine success in egg freezing and that being, um, you know, the number of eggs that you collect and freeze and the quality of these eggs. And these two factors are extremely dependent on the age at which you freeze your eggs. So as you get older, you produce less eggs, even when you undergo IVF and hormonal stimulation the number of eggs that you collect is going to be dramatically less than what a younger person might um, might expect. But what's more is that um, as you get older, the quality of your eggs degrades. So whilst, you know, you might collect 10 eggs um, in your late 30s, this doesn't mean that they all are, you know, viable eggs. So not only do you need, you know, a good number of eggs, but you also need a, um, good quality eggs um, when you're doing your collection. So depending on what age you seek egg freezing really influences how many cycles you need to do. Um, And this is something that, you know, you would be able to talk to your um, fertility specialist about. But of course, egg freezing is a pretty expensive procedure. So not all women are going to be able to afford, you know, multiple cycles. And this would, you know, decrease the number of eggs that they are able to collect. So that's a pretty severe limitation in terms of um, undergoing egg freezing and accessing this procedure as well. But then we see more limitations when we come to um, the policies governing egg freezing. So the first is to do with storage restrictions. So in Victoria, you can only store your eggs for 10 years. And, you know, you can put an application in um, if you'd like to try and extend this period. But, you know, by law, it's only a 10-year storage. And this really has implications in regards to, you know, what age you freeze your eggs. So you know, biologically speaking, you know, you might be able to collect um, more and higher quality eggs when you're younger. But if you're freezing eggs Mm. when you're 25, you've got to be thinking 10 years down the track at 35, am I going to be ready to use my eggs at that age? So it's really a balancing game between trying to optimise the number of eggs that you can collect, but also do it at a time when you think that you're likely, you know, you might need this Mm. um, in the future. 
So it's a bit yeah. of a, yeah, it's a bit of a, a, a balancing act, really. Yeah, that's really tricky because I guess if you freeze them at 25 and then within 10 years you're ready to have kids, I guess you still have a reasonably good chance of getting yeah. pregnant anyway. Absolutely, yeah, so absolutely, yeah. That's a really tricky decision to make, I guess, in terms of yeah, timing. Yeah, Exactly. And because it is, you know, um, so expensive, um, you know, you really kind of when you undergo this, you you want to go undergo it at a time where, you know, you you are likely to use them. Um, you know, there's no point saying all 20 year olds should undergo egg freezing because more likely mm. than not, they're going to be able to conceive naturally. And, you know, maybe they've undergone an invasive procedure when, you know, they didn't have to underdo, undergo this. Yeah. And in terms of so, um I guess a common thing is people freeze their eggs but then do get pregnant naturally mm. or with assistance. What happens to the eggs or what are your – we kind of touched on your on the options in the previous episode, but I guess I'm interested more in, you know, if you do decide to just have the eggs destroyed or I don't know what terminology you use. But how we say discard. <laughs> Discarded, okay, sorry. Destroyed <laughs> sound very, like, dramatic. I know, yeah. <laughs> So how does that process kind of happen? Do they just let them thaw out? And Yeah, so essentially um, when women are, you know, decide that they no longer need their eggs or that comes to that 10-year storage um, limit, they're kind of given four options. So the first option is to do with donation. So you can donate your eggs to um, medical research um, in saying that there are strict laws and regulations around what researchers can do. So that is stringently regulated. Um, you can donate it to someone who you know, so a family member or a friend who might be struggling to conceive, um, or you can donate it to a don uh, donor program um, to help someone that you might not know. Um, but in saying that, you know, there's been a recent um, law change in Victoria, which means that you can't donate anonymously anymore. So if the person who is um, conceived from, you know, an egg that you donate, um, they are able to seek information about you. And that's moderated by um, a right. overseen regulatory agent, agency in Victoria called VARTA. And right. the final option is um, discarding. Now, the clinics are very sympathetic when it comes to this. So they understand that this is a very hard decision, a very emotive decision for a lot of women. So they essentially work with you to see what, you know, you feel most comfortable with. I guess the traditional way of discarding is, you know, they remove the eggs from liquid nitrogen, so where they're, where they're stored, um, and then they just let them naturally thaw out. Um, and when they're not in, you know, specific media or in an incubator, um, this will, you know, they'll succumb naturally in this way. So it's really yeah. up to the individual and the clinics work with you because they understand this is, you know, a very emotional time. Yeah, and I guess it's something that you could have been, you know, if you've frozen your eggs 10 years ago, it's something that's been in some way a part of your life for a really long time and it, it well yeah like it's absolutely. like a very final decision absolutely yeah. and you know when you've got your eggs in storage you know each year you have to pay storage fees so it's not something that you can yeah. kind of shift outside of your mind you're constantly reminded that you know you still have you know some form of your fertility preserved yeah absolutely this is a total deviation from what we were talking about but have you heard that podcast the immaculate deception no i it's haven't about, oh just talking about like I guess the ethical and you know limitations about what you can do, but it's I might leave this out of the podcast. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> it's about this fertility specialist. I think he's American, and all these women were coming for assisted reproductive. Oh, is this the one that he used his own sperm? Yeah, yes. I know it's crazy. You know, these, so I guess yeah, I guess when you're donating eggs, it is helpful to have some way of like following up who you know, biologically, just in case of, you know, disease or that kind of thing. Do they use it for that? Do you know? 
So essentially, the I guess the basis of why that law was changed, because we always had anonymous donation, was to do more with the identity of the donor-conceived person um, who, you yeah. know, may have had questions about their heritage or their, you know, if you, when you do donate, you have to fill out a form and that you do, you know, give answers in terms of if you have any family, medical history, etc. Yeah. But it was more to do with um, identity and, you know, the um, donor-conceived people, you know, wanting to find out more about their origins. Um, and there's been some really, like, lovely reports of, you know, donor-conceived children meeting their donor and having a really um, lovely mm-hmm. relationship with them. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. And was that pushed for by individuals who were conceived by donor eggs? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, and donor okay. sperm or um, donor embryos even. So, yeah, donor yeah, okay. children, it, it kind of came from there. But it can work in yeah. the opposite way as well. So if you donate, you can, um, you know, put an application forward to see if you know there's been any children conceived um, from the yeah. from yeah <laughs> what you've been what you've donated as well. So it does work yeah. both ways. Um, and wow. Mm, it's really uh, interesting. Well, it's a very, it's a very significant law change. Yeah, it's huge. And just in terms of funding, where does funding for elective egg freezing come from? Yeah, so um, egg freezing is expensive. It costs anywhere between eight to ten thousand um, dollars. If you have a medical indication, so whether that be cancer treatment, endometriosis, um, you know, a diminished ovarian reserve, meaning you don't have many eggs left you are eligible through for a rebate with Medicare and that rebate's about 50% of the cost. So it's still a significant out-of-pocket expense. Um, however, in the absence of any of these medical indications, um, this cost is completely out-of-pocket. Co- out Private health insurance doesn't cover it. Um, so it is a huge financial barrier. Yeah, okay. And I was going to ask this later, but um, I guess it's relevant now. Do you think, you know, Do you think it's going to change in terms of making elective egg freezing more accessible to people who maybe don't have high incomes or do you think it's just one of those things that it it really is a choice and not medical so therefore it makes sense you would have to fund it yourself? Yeah, so, I mean, what you've just said there in terms of, um, oh, it's a choice so you should fund it yourself is essentially a lot of what the arguments are made on. They they kind of rest on that argument that, you know, it's their own choice if they want to do this. It's a, they, you know, liken it to other elective procedures like cosmetic surgery. However, this has been a key focus of my research and I disagree with that and I don't think that, you know, women are seeking elective egg freezing could choose to do otherwise or it's an elective procedure um, because, you know, firstly, you know, egg freezing is an invasive procedure Um, You know, it's not something that someone will just undergo just for something to do. Um, It does require Mm. a lot of thought and decision making um, in regards to accessing it or making the decision to access it. But also in these circumstances, a lot of the women don't have many options. I mean, if you don't have a partner, I mean, Mm. what options are available to you that you seek donor sperm or, you know, you jump into a relationship and settle down with someone who you you might, might not have done otherwise? So in these circumstances, is it do we say that that's just their fault and, you know, therefore they can't act, they, you know, if they want egg freezing, they'll just have to pay for it because they could have chosen otherwise. I don't really think that's a very um, fair assumption to make. And, you know, additionally, when you're thinking about egg freezing in particular, the end goal, regardless of whether it's a medical indication or if it's elective egg freezing, is to preserve fertility. So, you know, regardless of indication, it doesn't really matter um, if we're if we think that preserving fertility is an important thing. And I don't think that we should be making these decisions um, in terms of who can access it or who gets funding. 
um, on the basis of, you know, whether that's primary motivated by, um, you know, a medical condition or if it's motivated because someone just wants to, you know, preserve their chances of having a child later in life. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. And do you think it's likely to change or is it pretty set in stone at this stage? Uh, well, I mean, ideally, I, I would I would like that to see that there would be a review into this. It's just that, you know, you know, it's very easy. It's a very easy distinction to fall back on saying that we'll only fund, you know, medical indications. But, you know, that's not exactly true. We fund lots of things that aren't medically indicated, you know, contraception. There's no pregnancy isn't an illness or a disease. Um, but, you know, we fund contraception because we recognise that this enables women to expand their reproductive freedoms and we see this as really important. You know, we fund screening yeah. programs, you know, in these things. This isn't treating anything. This is just trying to, I guess, identify health conditions earlier to, you know, optimise public health and reduce suffering. So the argument that we only fund medical things isn't a very consistent or coherent argument to make. Yeah. But, you know, for this to change, it would need significant rallying um, of stakeholders, yeah. um, which, you know, would be a, probably a long road. But in saying that, it's, it's you know, this is a discussion they're having in the UK right now. There's people saying that we should be funding elective egg freezing. Um, I think that there was an MP who said that they would, they would consider, you know, um, consider this at least. So... You know, there does seem to be a small movement. Um, we do see, you know, recently um, in some other countries, um, elective egg freezing is being funded. There's, I only know one country that funds it through the public system, which was in Japan. One, um, you know, I guess council district started funding elective egg freezing. Um, but I do know that there's um, other countries that uh, private insurances have started jumping on board and, you know, offering... Um, the option of including um, egg freezing in your benefits packages. So there does seem to be a movement in terms of getting funding for it. Unfortunately, we don't have that yet in Australia. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's just such a, I guess, an area where so much seems to be changing so rapidly in like, yes. you know, the research and the policy and all of that. So it's really interesting. Um, I guess another kind of ethical question, it's not as far as I understand, you're not allowed to sell your eggs if you no longer want them or need them or even if mm -hmm. you decided to do that as kind of a financial thing. Mm -hmm. um, again, do you think this is something that is going to change or do you think that's a sensible a sensible thing that you can't sell eggs? Do you think yeah, you know, people so could be exploited by that? Exactly, exactly. And it's for that reason I think it's extremely unlikely that that would ever change. Um, you know, in Australia, you can't sell body parts or organs or any other tissues. So you can donate in an altruistic uh, approach. So, you know, it's, it's more gifting it to people. Um, in saying that, if I was um, being an egg donor myself, um, if I was donating eggs to you, for example, you could cover my treatment costs. So you could cover any out-of-pocket expenses I have with undergoing this procedure um, if, I'm, if the eggs are going to be for you. But that's pretty much where you can, but the only kind of compensation that you can provide you can't give any other value on top of that um, and you know essentially I think this is because you know if once we start involving you know a financial gain um, this does you know open up the opportunity for exploitation or women being coerced into undergoing this procedure um, this co compromises informed consent um, it also to a way um, makes eggs you know look like it's like a commodity almost and that you can, can mm. trade and sell in and that really dehumanizes what we're actually dealing with here and that's you know this is a potential life um, mm. and you know for that reason I don't think that you know we will ever be 
you know, open to the consideration of selling eggs yeah. or sperm or embryos. I think we'll just yeah. rest on this model of, you know, um, donation. Yeah. Okay. I guess because in some countries you can, like, get paid to donate blood and stuff like that as well, can't you? But yeah. in Australia that's not too. So, yeah. I yeah. guess it's good because it's just, like, protecting the potential donor from exploitation or feeling that they, they have to, you mm. know, lie on form medical history to you know for yeah, people to exactly. choose their eggs all that kind of exactly, stuff yeah. yeah so it is definitely a protection thing um I do know that in the UK they have a program where it's called like a freeze and share program so if you um want to go through egg freezing yourself if you agree to donating a portion of the eggs that are collected you can get a funded cycle and you know this is because I guess the reason from behind this is that um, egg donors are in you know very short they're in high demand but there's a short supply of them. So this was a way mm-hmm. to increase the donation pool. But again, there's so many ethical issues with this. Like you know how do you what if the eggs that you donate lead to a successful pregnancy and the eggs that you use don't? Um, you know is that mm-hmm. okay? Is that something that you just you know have to accept as a part of the um, process and? It's just a whole realm of, you know, ethical issues when you start looking at sharing programs as well. So, yeah. 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 Sounds like every country is like at a different stage with it too. Well, that's so. it. It's, it's extremely different. There's, it's, you know, heterogeneously mm-hmm. regulated around the world, um, which kind of shows that there's no uniform approach to this. Um, it's kind yeah. of evolving independently in each nation. So it's, you know, yeah. it's really something that we do need to be looking at in terms of what is the, you know, the best way forward and what is the fairest way to do this. Absolutely. And I know a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are in same-sex relationships or, you know, gender-diverse relationships, whatever it is. If both partners have, you know, uterus, eggs, whatever, if you're the one that freezes your eggs, say you're 31 and then you meet a long-term same-sex partner in your late 30s, if you want your partner to be able to carry the pregnancy, is that okay? Like, are you allowed to do that? Yeah, yeah. So that's something that you can do. And I actually think it's a really nice way for, you know, to include um, both people in, you know, the pregnancy journey. I think it's a really wonderful Mm -hmm. way of doing it. Um, And, you know, we don't have any issues with, you know, immune rejection or anything, because when you think about when you're growing a baby inside you, they have um, a completely different set of DNA to you. And, you know, our body doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, our immune system doesn't attack that. So it doesn't really matter if your egg um is you know from yourself or if it's um donated to you it is a possible Mm. um you know it's an it's it is possible to do that so I think it's a really nice way of you know involving both partners in the pregnancy journey absolutely and I guess because a lot of the discourse around elective egg freezing does seem to be based around heterosexual couples so I guess it's nice Mm. to know for those people you know it still is an option for you even if you're not in a a heterosexual relationship Yeah. yeah exactly exactly well, I'll just ask one final question or two maybe. If people are interested in this, what other resources or places you would recommend that they seek information from? Yeah, so I guess the first, um, I mean, a relevant source of information would be talking to your GP about it. If you have, you know, want to learn more about your fertility um you know, they're a great source for you. And, you know, this is something that you could definitely bring up in conversation with them. Um, You know, I think the problem with uh, fertility education is that, you know, we don't really think about our fertility until we want to have children. This is not something we're taught in schools. It's not a part of sex ed. Um, So, you know, this is something to think about, you know, start thinking about when you're in your 20s about, you know, what you want to do with your life and just something that you can, you know, 
reflect upon um, and, you know, make educated decisions about it. Um, in terms of resources online, there's a really wonderful resource called Your Fertility. Um, it's been, which I can send the URL for you. Um, it's got a lot of information in regards to the impact age has on fertility, lifestyle choices. Um, it talks about how IVF works. And it's got a lot of other additional resources in terms of additional reading. Um, and it's really accessible. It's written for the lay public. So, you know, really anyone can kind of jump on there and have a look. But I do think that this is, you know, this is something that you can discuss with other people as well. You know, there's a real lack of education in regards to fertility. So I think it's really important to be having this discussion with your friends, you know, teach each other, learn off each other, etc. Absolutely. And you've very beautifully articulated so many of the important issues around elective egg freezing. If people are interested to read a bit about the research you've done, where can they find that? So um, I have a Twitter profile. I um, haven't been too super active on it, but I, I, that is a goal for me <laughs> to be a bit more, um, to post a few more tweets, but I do post my yeah. research on there. Um, and my handle is just Molly L. Johnston. Um, cool. So yeah, my, my, uh, the study that I published on um, access, perceptions on access is um, on that page and any future studies Perfect. will be shared along there as well. Wonderful. Well, I'll link all those resources and stuff in the show notes if anyone's interested. But thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been super interesting and I've learned a lot. <laughs> no, thank you. I really I really love talking about it. So it's been you know, so, so fun to be a part of. Yeah, and good luck with the last two months of your PhD. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You to you, you to me, you to us is a podcast for general discussion only. Nothing we talk about should be taken as personal medical advice and it does not substitute information or instructions given to you by your own doctor. If the podcast raises any questions or concerns for you, please see your GP, sexual health or family planning clinic. For general discussion, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please stop trusting strangers on the internet with your health. This podcast is a production of Simo Interactive, home of the My Millennial Money podcast.